0: Welcome to the 29th episode of our Middle East Institute podcast series, Boots of the Ground, Security in Transition from the Middle East and Beyond. In this series, we look at the future of warfare and uniformed soldier or boots on the ground being replaced by private military companies, autonomous weapon system and cyber weapon. I'm Alessandro Arduino, and I will be your host today. Last month, we explored the future of cyber warfare and cyber intelligence with Roy Zur. And today, I'm very excited to explore digital authoritarianism with our special guest, Dr. Mark Owen-John. He's assistant professor in Middle East Study at Hamad bin Khalifa University. Mark's knowledge of political repression and information control strategy is second to no one having spoken about and published extensively on the subject. And what I want to focus today is his most recent book, Digital Authoritarianism in the Middle East. The book provides invaluable insight on the dimension of the cyberspace, especially if we look at how digital authoritarianism is playing around. And I really want to advise to our audience, it's a really good reading. And Mark. Thank you for being with us today. Thank you, it's a pleasure to be here. Uh, In your book, you mentioned the strategy of control in the service of elite power maintenance. I mean, strategy that affects people's life. Propaganda and disinformation definitely are not a new thing, but uh, the digital revolution is accelerating this trend. Especially now, if we focus on the Middle East, your area of expertise, can you please trace for our audience how we moved for, let's say, a kind of euphoria during the Arab Spring when we shared a very positive vision of technological driving revolution to what we have today, digital authoritarianism, let's say, uh, with a more dystopian approach to technology. The floor is yours, Mark.
1: Absolutely. Although before I begin, I think maybe, this episode, instead of should being called "Boots on the Ground," should be "Bots on the Ground." Um, <laughs> but yeah, I, I'd love to track this change. I think it's such a crucial question. I mean, as you said, 2011, I think, was uh, beset, or 2010, the beginning of the Arab uprisings, was beset by this techno utopianism, uh, this idea that technology would liberate us, it would um, it would allow for greater democratization and allow people who lived in authoritarian regimes, uh, and as we know, the Middle East, um. Or almost all regimes are slightly authoritarian or authoritarian. It would allow them to hold their government to account, and and and, and liberalize the space. This this idea of liberation technology uh, was ascendant, and I think therein lies the problem. We have, I think, it's very normal, and I don't know if it's a post-industrial thing to believe that technology somehow is deterministic. That technology is devoid of. Uh, how it's used in social context, that somehow technology will solve our problems. And and we're used to this, you know, technology has been important in medicine. It's, you know, it's helped us, um, you know, improve our infrastructure. It obviously does great things, but that doesn't mean technology is inherently benevolent. And I think what happened in 2010-11, it it was useful. These new tools bring along, I would say, a honeymoon period. And a honeymoon period is is a time where um, people's Uh, Lack of experience, their naivety and their sense of optimism are ascendant and they use these technologies as in a way they're expected to. And I say they're expected to because there was a lot of stuff in the media and even from the companies themselves about how these technologies were for freedom of speech and and that kind of thing. So when you think about it, if you're using these Facebook or Twitter, using them to communicate your um, frustrations at the regime or your criticism of the regime, using them to organize um, because in a sense you are generally young you've this is unfamiliar space you don't necessarily think of the potential consequences that can be um, the negative consequences of this so i think people were swept up in this euphoria as was mentioned the barrier of fear was broken there was definitely this idea that change was imminent and i think this allowed people to let their guard down the problem with it is is not necessarily technology itself is that this was all happening in a context of authoritarianism and authoritarian regimes, by their definition, they will use anything at their disposable to, to actually try and um, repress opposition. So if you have someone who's posting a photo of themselves at the Tahrir Square or Dua Lulu and saying, yay, uh, you know, like, um, you know, let's we want change. Then all it takes is a couple of people from the mukhabarat or intelligence services or pro-regime loyalists to circulate that photo and say, hey, this person's a traitor. What's their name? Where do they live? Uh, And that's exactly what happened in places like Bahrain and Egypt, right? So we saw very quickly this technology was co-opted. And I say quickly, within months, I mean, I started my PhD in 2011 on Bahrain and my initial and within the space of three months, my thesis is already technology is being co-opted as a tool of repression. So I don't think it took long. Um, You know, we even saw the use of spyware like Pegasus, but not Pegasus, FinFisher in this case, being used in, in 2011 and 12. Um, so even these kind of more intrusive things, I think, that we associate with 2015 on, were being used. And when, when, when there are examples in the public sphere of activists or opposition people who use technology being arrested or tortured, as has happened, then all this does is spread distrust between people and technology. People know then that if they use technology for, say, criticizing the government, there is a good chance that they could be found out. And I think over the past 10 years, uh, civil society has become far more aware of the consequences of the technology. And so as, as well as governments using this technology to pop people, I think the element of trust that is necessary for social movements and the trust in technology has been destroyed by the many high profile examples of states using digital technology to, to repress people.
0: No, Thank you, Mark. As you mentioned, uh, the, the honeymoon period is over. And uh, what we like to focus here, and we started with uh, a discussion with the United Nations, we moved on uh, uh, talking with the founder of Belling, Kat Higgins, and we also had uh, the founder of NSO in, uh, in our podcast, uh, uh, is uh, the cyber disinformation sphere, or mm. uh, what you call in uh, your book, uh, pseudo reality industry. Mm. What exactly is a pseudo reality industry?
1: Yeah, I think the idea of pseudo-reality is really interesting. I mean, as you as you mentioned, disinformation is not new, propaganda is not new. Many of the techniques that we're seeing uh, are not necessarily new. Obviously, technology has changed that. But I think the proliferation of digital technologies has provided so many new business opportunities for firms to exploit that technology to create what I call pseudo-realities. Now, pseudo, I, I use this term... I'm not getting theoretical, but it's the idea of a, a studio event, which was coined by Borstein. It's the idea of you create an event that's kind of staged in many ways, or at least fake, uh, and, and then that replaces reality. So the, what I mean by this is that there's a, a bevy, and I'll just use an example because there's many people involved in this, but I'll use an example of, say, Western PR firms. When I say Western, I use the term loosely. These PR firms could be everywhere, but I use that term because I want I want to emphasize the point that there is a chain Here, it's not just something, this information is not just something that happens in authoritarian regimes versus non, there's a supply chain. So, for example, you have a company like um, uh, uh, Project Associates, right? This is a British company. We know because they filed FARA filings on a U.S. government website, the Department of Justice. And and this company, they were contracted by the UAE Supreme Media Council to create a campaign. They worked with the parent company of Cambridge Analytica, SEL Social. The idea was to create a global media campaign, right? So part of this campaign was to create um, social media adverts and social media accounts. And I think this is a really good example because we see this as a playbook of many of these PR companies, including likes of Bell Pottinger. What they do is create uh, fake accounts that then, you know, demonstrate that they have certain political opinions. They're engaging in discussions online, trying to shape discussions online. But these accounts aren't real people. You know, they're an artificial civil society. They're artificial grassroots, astroturfing. So what they're doing, and not only are they trying to shape the information space, but they're actually trying to create the illusion of popular opinion by creating fake accounts, right? Because in the digital world, sometimes the idea of just creating an account is enough to create a voice. So these industries are creating this. And the narratives they're spreading, remember, these narratives are, in many cases, paid for by a client, or whoever that client is. So the client will have a desired message that they wish to spread. In the case of this one, it was like Qatar is supporting terrorism through Al Jazeera and Yusuf Qadadawi. Um, There's elements of truth in that, of course. There's elements of truth in that, but the emphasis is about a specific message that those generally in power who have the money to pay for these operations are trying to do. Um, And there's many examples of this that I'd be happy to give. You know, Bell Pottinger worked in South Africa to do something similar, and then they, you know, provoked racial tensions because They basically had like a a kind of um, race-baiting campaign created by these fake accounts. So they're stimulating, injecting controversy, they're injecting polarization into civil society through the creation of people who do not even exist, right? And and to me, this is this idea of the pseudo-reality industry. There is people out there who basically make money off monetizing the um, these services provided to high-paying clients in order to manipulate the public sphere and create the illusion of opinion opinions that don't really exist, or they may exist, but they need to be amplified.
0: No, well, I think what you just mentioned um, is very compelling, especially if uh, we look at how the virtual world uh, have a direct effect on the real world. Mm. Uh, In our previous postcard, we discussed how cyber disinformation campaign also supported the role of boots on the ground of mercenary. So when we have a virtual and real matching together with violence uh, one example uh, as you mentioned in africa we have uh, an extensive uh, expanding footprint uh, of the wagner group uh, is a paramilitary group russian paramilitary group in africa and at the same time uh, it's combined uh, with the use uh, of russian troll farm in spreading disinformation in uh, in the continent so in your opinion when we try to point the finger and say someone is a mercenary uh, is not easy, but it's been done. But I think it's even more difficult to point the finger to say someone is a cyber mercenary. So mm-hmm. in your opinion, when cyber mercenaries share similarity with conventional mercenary, let's say, try to make an example, a botmaster using puppet socket to spread cyber disinformation. This, mm-hmm. uh, as you say, the example of South Africa ignited violent act that ended up with people killed in the real world and not only harassed uh, in the virtual one. So we can call him a cyber mercenary?
1: I I think so. I mean, I think, you know, I think obviously mercenary has connotations and those connotations often, like you said, more associated with someone like the Wagner group, people who are the boots on the ground. But, uh, you know, I think if someone receives money to engage in behavior that is deceptive, where they are misleading someone, Right? And this is crucial because intent is crucial in this whole definition. Their intent is to cause some form of harm, even if they agree with it ideologically. There is an element of mercenary there, right? Trying to determine the outcomes is hard because I don't know if we can just term someone a mercenary based on the fact that we know that what they did resulted, say, in violence. Because at the same time, you can't guarantee outcomes. Someone could intend to, to, to write something online in order to create a public shift in mood that might result in violence. It may not succeed in that. That doesn't mean they're not a mercenary because their intent was always to do something particular. But I think the, at the end of the day, if people are engaged in deception operations that have an intention to cause harm and they are receiving some sort of compensation from it, then they are a mercenary, a cyber mercenary. No, you, you pointed out um, a
0: compelling fact uh, that is intention. Uh, mm-hmm. In the United Nations definition of mercenarism uh, intention uh, it's also play an important part. Uh, but we are moving in an uncharted territory now. In the mm. definition of mercenary is something that per se, is, it's very uh, compelling and amply discussed. But uh, uh, also, it's another thing that came out from our previous episode, talking uh, in a different way on uh, not only on mercenary, but even on uh, combat drone. It's mm. not a problem only of intention, but it's a problem of attribution. And uh, in the cyber realm, attribution, uh, and we discussed it with Roy Zur just in in the previous podcast, uh, is uh, extremely difficult to pinpoint uh, who is uh, the real puppet master behind the scene. So uh, when you were investigating uh, the cases for your book, uh, did you experience the same problem
1: of attribution? Yeah, attribution is, uh, is so difficult and you know even as you know in, in cybersecurity where we're talking more about penetration issues even even those who are tackling it will often say they talk in degrees of confidence about who might be behind something um for example because it can be very hard to attribute um and and i think it's even harder in disinformation because you 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 you're not necessarily looking at someone who's going to trace back to an ip address used by the national security agency of a certain country right it doesn't work that way and and i think there's been a number of investigations i think one of the most Obvious examples. I mean, I look at bot control campaigns all the time, but I think one of the most interesting examples was when um, I, I worked with a journalist from the Daily Beast, Adam Ronsley, and we looked at this network of journalists who were 20 journalists who managed to fool 46 different international outlets into publishing over 100 opinion articles. And these journalists didn't exist. You know, they were social media accounts that were obviously backed by some sort of company, whether a PR company, strategic communication company or in cyber intelligence. We don't know. However, in that case, it was interesting because what we had to do when we had the weight of evidence that was publicly available, which was these 100 opinion articles, we looked at them and we analyzed them from a sort of discourse basis. What was their kind of argument? What was their overarching argument? And we sort of concluded that really the the arguments being used by these fake journalists broadly supported the foreign policy of the UAE, maybe right wing American hawks or Israel, possibly. So in that case, we could narrow it down. But there was no smoking gun. There was no someone who came forward and say, I'm a whistleblower. Yeah, we work for this kind of company, right? So it, it was really hard to determine. And, and, you know, this is kind of an investigation that could be ongoing. You know, hints could keep coming in. And in which case, and sometimes th- there might be a case where, you know, someone at Google um, might say, hey, one of the accounts using this operation forgot to use a VPN and the IP address leads to this company. These things can happen down the line. And even with this case, that might happen. But I think it's a good example of where attribution is hard and you have to make um, sort of uh, educated analysis and then end up with a, um, a degree of, of, of likelihood rather than anything certain. But this is the problem with the information space and it's exploited and weaponized by disinformation actors because they know that accountability and attribution is really hard.
0: And this is very compelling because there is a lot of talk about fake news uh, but is mind-blowing the fact that uh, not only a uh, new media platform but also journalists are fake online that was really something that uh, after reading it in your book uh, every time i get uh, a press quote request or something like this the first thing i go is to check yeah. background and all this thing but uh, as you mentioned Absolutely. correctly uh, have a face-to-face talk even on zoom can be right. can be very important while well, you just google it uh, you're fine you find a couple of reference and you go with that and uh, and yeah, it's yeah. wrong but another part that was really intriguing uh, reading while uh, reading your book uh, is what you term hack and leak operation yeah. so what yeah. is a hack and leak operation and how does it affect digital
1: authoritarianism so i think the hack and leak operation is this now i think it's becoming more widespread we saw a lot of in the gulf crisis around 2017 is where state or state-backed actors or non, non-attributed non actors uh hack sensitive material from certain people and leak that information in order to, to cause some level of harm to the person who's exposed so we saw a normal that in the gulf crisis uh qatar were accused of i think hacking the ue the ambassador to the us use Al um there was uh, there was a al Jazeera journalist whose phone was hacked and photos of her in a bikini were then circulated along with fake news stories that she was you know sleeping with the head of al Jazeera in, in return for promotion so this idea that now i think in terms of a security vector we all have you know i always like to think of it you know the the ultimate totalitarianism is being able to read your thoughts right this is the our brain is the last bastion of privacy but a close second would be our mobile phone Right. We, we we document so many of our intimate details on there, whether it's selfies, it's conversations with friends, close friends. So the ability to have that information, which is obviously now done through hack operations, say, using things like Pegasus, uh, or even social engineering, is we're able to, to weaponize people's personal information in a way that I think was much harder before because of digital technology, and then use that information to smear them. And we've seen this in national-level debates. I mean, the cata crisis is one uh, where we we saw the information used in these hacks to, to, to kind of denigrate opposition everywhere and also provide forms in a way of trying to 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 kind of rationalize foreign policy decisions. Say, hey, we're doing this, but we're doing this because this other state is also doing this. And I think, um, you know, the, the problem with these hack and leak operations, again, is that we don't know always who's behind them, but the, the supply chains are interesting. I mean, the, the example of this karma, I think um, we saw we see heads of state being hacked now. I think the uh, mere kata was hacked by karma. Um, and, and this was an interesting operation because it involved um, ex-NSA, American NSA employees working for the Emirati government to to target American citizens and non-American citizens. So in these hack and leak operations, we, we see the full supply chain um, in action. We see people trained in one state being hired by another state to engage in spying of people in a transnational way. And what happens with the information taken then becomes another question. And this is the thing. It's... Um, it's the weaponization of personal information, for political gain that I think alarms me. I don't think states are fair game necessarily, but I think if you're a politician or a state leader, there's a reasonable expectation that you might be targeted. I think what alarmed me so much is seeing citizens and civilians and activists being hacked and then potentially malinformation we can use to smear them. That really worried me because, you know, I know activists are public or journalists are public but they didn't sign up for this political office role. And, and to me, that has a really strong chilling effect on freedom of speech.
0: No, as you mentioned, the, the operation uh, in the UAE uh, with former NSA employee, uh, that's quite, uh, in my opinion, a definition of cyber mercenary. And if mm-hmm. I recall correct, when the um, head of NSA was asked about it, uh, there are some kind of contingency for former operative uh, to apply, in, uh, let's say, their dark art abroad, uh, but then there are not so much barrier. And we knew about it just because, uh, uh, if I recall correct, there was a whistleblower that came back to the United States and said, oh, we have started to do some nasty stuff on our own citizen, and it's better to take a look about it if it's something wrong. But then uh, up to now, we have been talking about how state operate in the digital sphere in mm. what has been also called a war against reality. But states are not necessarily the fundamental unit of analysis because we see there are a lot of uh, private operators but also non-state actors that are bent on the state uh, using this information and using a cybersphere operation. Uh, As uh, an academician, I'm asking you, This information uh, cannot only be researched using a very narrow, let's say, only one single academic discipline. Uh, Mm -hmm. In my personal opinion, that's an obstacle to a proper research, widespread. But in this respect, uh, what do you suggest to address this compelling problem?
1: Mm. I mean, I think it's really an important one. And I make that point very clearly that uh, this kind of research transcends Discipline and boundaries i mean there's different elements in the chain there's the detection of this information the monitoring and then down the line there's how do we address these problems in terms of detecting you know i think we need increased cooperation from uh, technical experts uh, who 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 might be well versed in it um, but I don't just mean, you know, your classic IT kind of experts. Also people who are like uh, in the digital humanities, who, who do things like corpus analysis, uh, you know, author profiling, who analyze large amounts of text to determine who might be behind them. But crucially, what we need in this are political scientists. Um, we need security analysts, because there's one element where you can detect something's fake. You need people to know the local context of politics and to, in, in, in to better explain or to try and understand in some cases, why these might be the problem. If we look at cases where there's no attribution, one of the ones I mentioned was this case of of the fake journalists. I mean, here you have so many issues (laughs) that need to be remedied. Firstly, you have the journalists or the editors who fail to do proper verification of the sources. How do you solve that particular problem? Well, you need better training. Uh, You need um, to address the media literacy in in these case of journalists. How do you determine who might be behind that? Well, you need people who are familiar with the security or geopolitics of the region or different regions to be able to determine that those 100 articles probably fell within or or could be explained as like pro-emirati propaganda Uh, but at the same time you also need people who are able to um, understand the notion of deep fakes people who are able to do investigative journalists and so i think you really need this kind of collaboration between different people to be able to understand that and crucially when it comes to it we need language experts when it if it if we're looking at expanding this beyond one language, and that's crucial. Arabic language, every language in the world will have these disinformation problems. Um, and so you'll need linguistics, you know, linguists, um, translators. Really, you, you need everyone. You need institutions. you know. So things like uh, groups like Citizen Lab are, are a good example of people who combine elements of expertise to produce compelling reports, I mean they're more technical-led. I think in the way they 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 publish a lot of information, but at the same time they still have a holistic approach. I say to this problem, and it's public service-oriented. You know, you can't just you can have just a security analysis somewhere. but I think what we're talking about here is an ontology in which we we generally want to accept that disinformation or deception is a problem and not something that needs to be encouraged. So we need people who are who who believe that tackling this is actually a public service. And that, that's where it's crucial, I think. And that's what will affect how we deal with it. Because in order for this to remain a public service, it needs to be funded or, or, or managed by people who aren't in this to try and use it as a tool of manipulation themselves. I mean, there's a few examples of fact-checking organizations that themselves are very partisan. Uh, I can name a couple in Spain, but that's a different, different debate altogether. <laughs>
0: No, I said say that the, the problem of uh, language, uh, it's very compelling because when I was mm-hmm. talking with specialists about fake news, uh, there is a lot of attention now uh, on the Russian blogosphere. And I would yeah. say, no, that's the that's case. It's important. Uh, you look more at that. So, for example, China is not an issue. And they were very blunt and they say, we don't know because we have a Russian language expert. We don't have Chinese language expert, So we are not looking at that just for the problem. And machine translation in Chinese, uh, trust me, is not working as well as with other European uh, language. But this is a critical issue. And university and uh, place of when you train people to think, uh, uh, still need to address this kind of problem. Uh, same problem is with the lack of IT expert, and uh, not only on cybersecurity everywhere. Uh, what uh, company uh, like the one we interviewed with Roy Zur are doing is training people in boot camp, doing a working camp, very intensive, because they mentioned that uh, waiting university time uh, three slash six year. To have a proper IT expert uh, with this kind of demand from the market, uh, Mm -hmm. it's undoable. There there is so much that we need right now and waiting uh, this uh, very lengthy time. uh, And not many people are interested up to now to enroll in this kind of job. But Mm -hmm. doing this course, uh, looking at OSINT, uh, looking at fake news, uh, it's a critical issue. And what I always ask as the last question to our guest uh, is to look uh, in, in a thirty-year time frame. But I realize that moving from the boots on the ground to the cyber sphere, talking about thirty years, is really impossible. So I'm I'm asking you another impossible question, but it's to look at the next, let's say, five, eight year. And uh, mm-hmm. your book mentioned that. Uh, several times something that for me is very important uh, a critical mm. issue that fake news is not a fight about truth is a fight about power mm. so uh in our private discussion with higgins uh, uh, the founder of bellingcat uh, and uh, with roy zur and he was a re- he's a retired mayor from Israeli army elite uh, uh, 8 200 uh, we discussed it, as we did with you today the need for accountability and transparency mm. So, if you look uh, at the evolution of digital authoritarianism, let's say from today to 2030, what is the direction that you can
1: forecast? I mean, the past 10 years have obviously something I've seen as uh, as a negative trend, uh, increasing, uh, I would say, authoritarianism. You know, I think in my experience, um, the trend is, is also, I'm cynical about the direction of the trend. What I see is a rise of, What used to be called totalitarianism in in some respects, I mean, totalitarianism became unfashionable uh, after the demise of the Soviet Union and then people started using authoritarianism um, for obvious reasons. But I think one element of totalitarianism always struck me um, and totalitarian the the key distinguishing feature, I think, that Aaron mentioned is the desire to to invade one's private space. Right. Uh, Regimes were, I think they fetishize security, right? So all these digital technologies become fetishes. This idea of Pegasus and the scale with the views shows how authoritarian regimes just crave information. So the next logical step for that is the ability to know as much as possible about the individual. And I think that trend seems to be going in a direction that doesn't seem to be uh, countered by sufficient safeguards. Uh, as far as I know, especially in authoritarian regimes, there's there's no compelling reason to believe that what's happening in Saudi uh, or or the UE or, or what Israel is selling is showing any sign of abatement. Um I don't see it. I, you know where are who's going to stop, for example, the Saudi government from uh, you know deploying their own or hiring their own in-house specialists to develop technology that spies on people's mobile phones? What's stopping them? There's no parliament, there's no obvious transparency. I would say the you know in, in the current guise, the Chinese government have shown no um, you know, no regard or willingness to to curtail their use of surveillance on the Uyghurs, but the general population with the social credit system. U.S. at the moment, I think, is is plagued by its own internal battles. And I think, you know, regardless of who wins the next election, I think there's this ascendancy of right wing populism uh, in which issues of, you know, personal freedom are going to be subsumed into this idea of a security state where nationalism transcends uh, any sense of personal freedom, despite the rhetoric. So I see it as moving in a very negative direction. And I think all these talks of transparency, this kind of critique of Pegasus coming from the US, is all superficial. We know that the US is pragmatic. We saw that with Saudi Arabia. Joe Biden said he would make a prior MBS, but he visited them when they need gas. You know, if the US allies require the use of Pegasus, then it will be allowed. So I I don't see anything uh, a sufficient counterwave. I don't think we're in that moment, uh, unfortunately.
0: So, Mark, uh, I'm going to thank you beside the fact that you give us a very... Negative end note of our future. But help you also <laughs> helped me to rope in our next podcast, where we are going to discuss uh, uh, about another aspect uh, of the cyber sphere security, that is cyber sovereignty. Uh, as you just mentioned, Mark, uh, you say that China is having its own direction, and for example, in country like China or Russia, cyber uh, the cyber sphere is national territory. And it means that everything that happened in the cyber sphere is part of, as comprehend in national security law, and this is a huge repercussion not only on local citizen, but of course in the exchange of cross-border data. But that's something that we are going to discuss in our next podcast. Please, Mark, allow me to thank you again for uh, your time and to thanks our audience for following us on BOTG. Thank you and have a great day.